On this episode, Scarborough, the host of MSNBC's Morning Joe. He wanted us to overreact. He wanted us to shout and scream. He wanted us to get angry because there was so much outrage porn being generated on all sides. It was just exhausting. I'm David M. Drucker with The Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my forthcoming book of 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. Full disclosure, I'm a fan. I like Joe and I like the show, where I'm a frequent guest. Joe and his co-host, Mika Brzezinski, are always kind enough to let me offer my unique perspective. Or who knows, maybe they're just humoring me. Joe Scarborough is a fascinating figure. He's a former rabble-rousing congressman who entered the House as a conservative populist way back in 1995. Eventually, he became a cable television host who threw in with the so-called mainstream media. And he's not just any television host. Along with Brzezinski, they host one of MSNBC's top-rated programs, and it's their morning flagship program. Scarborough also happens to know a little something about Trump. So for this episode of In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024, I cornered Joe for about a half an hour and asked him to explain a few things about the former president, the changes in his political party and where he fits in as a media influencer and a few other things. And now my conversation with Joe Scarborough. Joe Scarborough, thanks for dropping by in Trump's shadow. Hey, it's great to be here. Uh, this is fun for me because normally I'm the one getting the questions from you. And today <laughs> I get to turn the tables a little. Exactly. Hey, uh, listen, I, I wanted to start out um, given my focus uh, for the book on Trump and his impact on the party mm-hmm. on something that really cross is a crosses with us and that's his relationship with the media how he treats the media you know he, he says all the time he hates the, the media and fake news this fake news that and enemy the people this and enemy the people that i i think he loves us now, he needs us but i really think he loves us i just think that's the way he communicates to his base but i, I wanted to ask you what you think because your experience with him goes even deeper than mine so i love the media myself i was i was one of these strange politicians a strange republican conservative politician that was obsessed with the press and the media i was just always fascinated with it we grew up in my household watching walter cronkite you know my dad yeah, always called Cronkite a commie. Uh, but at the end of every episode, when when Walter said that's the way it was, he believed it. I I grew up, you know, even though I was a conservative, reading the New York Times all the time, and it was just I was fascinated by media. So so I actually saw that in Donald the first time I met him and started talking to him. Just obsessed with the media above all else. Uh, he grew up, of course. Uh, in 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 the New York area, so the tabloids were yeah. What the New York Post wrote, what the the, the Daily News wrote, were just absolutely critical to him. And uh, same with the New York Times on a different level, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and so he he does love the media. He remains obsessed with the media. I know that you like me are yeah. You know, after he left the White House, 
you would say, wait, wait, who's he giving an interview to? I mean, who is he talking? Like, this is a person that trashed him for five years. And um, but he can't help himself. He, and, and I think that anger and the rage at the media is he always wanted to be accepted by the media. He is uh, he's been called by Graydon Carter, an outer boroughs guy. He's always sort of felt like an outer outer boroughs guy who comes to Manhattan. He builds all the big buildings. He puts his name on all the buildings. He then is the star on the TV show. He's then elected president of the United States. And he's thinking, when in the hell am I finally going to get respect from these people? And it just uh, never happened, obviously, for a variety of reasons. But you know, he he loves the media. Uh, he lives for the media. You talk to anybody, and as I know you have, uh, that was in the White House with him. You know, he always talked about hating Morning Joe. He watched every morning. Uh, he had, he had watched Fox and Friends uh, on TiVo and rewinded. He'd watch other shows on on what he called TiVo and rewind it um, because of his obsession with the media. You know, it's it's fascinating when I interviewed him for In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024 in the, the GOP. I, I tried to get inside his head in one way. I wanted to know after being elected president of the greatest, most powerful country to ever grace the earth, why it mattered so much to him that people like him or treat him nicely. And remember, when he used to be allowed to tweet, he used that word nice all the time. You're yeah. not nice. You were nice. What do you have any and it seemed like it was just a tick, by the way. Like I couldn't, there wasn't yeah. some, hey, it's strategy, you know, off the record. It was just, that's the way I am. I mean, it, is there anything there that you've been able to glean over the years? Well, there's no strategy. He is a day trader. I actually called him a day trader. Maggie Haberman, I think, got it better. And she, of course, has been covering for a very long time in New York. Uh, but she said that Trump lives to survive the next 10 minutes. And that's how he's always lived his life. Uh, whether it's from creditors or lawyers or whether uh, it's from political scandals or media, he lives for the next 10 minutes. So if somebody attacks him, then he spends the next 10 minutes slashing out at him, um, which I always thought, and I've said this before, I always thought was one of the real tragedies that I, I, I knew him for about a decade before and <laughs> before he was president. And he actually, when he wanted to be charming, he was one of the most charming people in the world. Now, not if you were a creditor or, you know, if you dated the guy or like you do the long list, that's fine. But if he wanted to charm you in a social setting, uh, I saw him charm, uh, you know, everybody. In fact, there would be people that would, would come up to me in 2017, 2018, knowing that obviously we were very hostile towards him. They go, oh. I'm going in to meet Trump. Oh, I can't believe I'm going. I got to go in for this meeting with a, a group. And, and I said, let me warn you now. You're going to get in there and you're going to leave unless he's in a really bad mood. And you're going to leave. And you're going to go, hey, I really like that guy because he could be charming. And before he um, got sworn in, um, there were there were quite a few people who thought since he was more comfortable in social settings with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer uh, and Al Sharpton, who we used to go to boxing matches with, and 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 Democrats, because the guy is a Democrat, 
I, I used to always say that on my show and he go, he'd call me, go, Joe, don't tell him that. Stop telling him that. Because I'd say he's not a real conservative people. He, uh, yeah. Uh, but, but he was not comfortable with Paul Ryan. He would never do anything with Paul Ryan before he got into politics or Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy. And so um, there are quite a few people were hopeful that he would show the same charm that he had showed at times uh, in his professional career when it served his purposes to get things done. But it was a personal tick. Like you said, the guy couldn't do what every great politician has to do. And that is ignore the slight, ignore the nasty interview, ignore, ignore the, the terrible headline. I remember one time Bill Clinton, and I think this was a thinly veiled sort of pushback at Barack Obama said, the best thing, the best characteristic a governor can have or a president can have is a short memory. The only thing better than that is no memory at all. And I will say, you could impeach Bill Clinton on Tuesday and he would invite you to go golfing on a Wednesday because he was always worried about the next vote. He was always worried about the next win. And he put everything in his rearview mirror. And it's just something that Donald could never do. Yeah, I have to say to your point, by the way, he's one of the most in, in interview settings, and I've interviewed him twice, one of the most charming politicians, most welcoming politicians I've ever interviewed. Like, what can I get you to drink? Yeah, exactly. How are you? I mean, yeah. then it's all about him. But at first, it's it's just a very I hope you're at home. You know, do you need a do you need a Diet Coke? What can I what can I get for he you? He wants in the worst way to be loved, to be accepted. And it's something that the media never did. Um, it's something that, of course, uh, there are a thousand different reasons why that never happened. But I always thought it was also interesting, the difference that you talk about, the difference between Donald Trump on a personal level and Donald Trump when he plays the role of strongman politician are so totally different. Because if Donald Trump went to your book party when he was a private citizen, before he got into politics, I promise you, because I saw this guy for a decade around New York City, he'd walk into the room and you would say, well, wait, why is Trump at my book party? Like he, he's got to have better things to do. And so people would always say, because he was always sort of this big looming presence in every room, that say, thank you so much for coming, Mr. Trump. And he'd go, well, let me tell you, I, I had no other choice. David Drucker has written the greatest book ever in American political history. And I put it number like one, the Gutenberg Bible two, Shakespeare. Like, and he would talk incessantly about how great you were. People would come up. He would talk about them. Uh, if you said, oh, I saw uh, Ivanka and she's so polite, she's so kind. He'd say, well, that's because of her mother. I didn't do anything. This because her mother did a great job raising her. I was fortunate. And it'd say that about Don Jr. or everybody. And so there was this outward looking, charming character that Donald Trump had when he wanted to do it. And that's what he did in New York society. For the most part, he certainly didn't do that. You know, if he gets on TV and he'll say the nastiest things about you know, Rosie O'Donnell or whoever else he was he was having a battle with. But if he could, he wanted to charm you and he wanted to win you over. 
And that would have been a great skill to take into the White House if he could have just, if he didn't have that tick where he had to push back against every single slight. Yeah, it was always fascinating to me because I thought he could have leveraged his fame and the fact that he wasn't a typical politician. And of course, by the time he got into the White House, the low expectations for what people thought they were getting, it could have been a totally different four years. But um, here we are. Hey, I want to back up for a minute and just talk about you. Uh, I've always been fascinated watching you, uh, not not only because you sort of transitioned from being a, a politician to a successful media figure, but you know, when I think about the Republican Party, I mean, here you were a conservative populist from the South. Right. Uh, you're a bit of a troublemaker in your own way. Um, yeah. What are the what is the difference between the troublemakers of 1994, 95, 96, et cetera? And, you know, those House Republican troublemakers we think of today when we think of either a Matt Gates or a a Marjorie Taylor Greene, or even just a Jim Jordan, a House Freedom Caucus, earnest policy kind of a guy. I, I feel like there's a, a difference there, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Well, I don't see the earnestness in, in the policy. I sat down with Mark Meadows many times. Uh, we had breakfast back when he was uh, running the Freedom Caucus. And I sat down with him, uh, and I think it was maybe in 17 and 18. I said, Mark, you know, you like to go around saying that you're sort of now in the group that we started in 95. We, I was like, Mark, we, we didn't obsess on these side issues, these side shows. It was about small government. It was about balancing the budget. It was about paying down the debt. It was about uh, curbing the rate of growth for Social Security and Medicare to help them survive for another generation. It was all ideologically driven. We tried to eliminate four cabinet agencies. Now, we were constantly trying to get as much money and power and authority to states and local governments and have the federal government do what the federal government could do best. But what the states could do, have the states do it, what the local local governments could do to it. That was our mindset. And every single thing we did was shaped by that. And, you know, we shut down the House several times when one time when Newt Gingrich was talking about uh, throwing away the tax cuts uh, in, in trying to figure out how to balance the budget. We shut it down. There were we had an 11 vote majority. There were 11 of us that, that refused to vote for a rule. And we didn't buckle until we got assurances that he was going to keep the tax cuts and do what it took to balance the budget. Um, and, and, and so you knew where we were coming from. Uh, and, and so you talk about the troublemakers. I, I wish there were a group of troublemakers that gave a damn about balancing the budget when a Republicans in the white house gave a damn about, you know, paying down the debt when there's a Republican in the white house that cared about saving entitlements when there's a Republican in the white house, that they don't exist. They didn't exist. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for Bush's last seven years, and they didn't exist uh, for Trump's four years. So have you changed or did the party change? Oh, my God. It's, I mean, it's, I mean, we uh, all change. I don't it, mean it that way. Yeah, but- no, 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 no. But ideologically, you can take what I said in my first campaign. And every time, every time I'll just say, 
a media figure over the past 15 years. So just go about the liberal. I said, I'll pay you a thousand dollars to name an issue that I've changed significantly on whether, you know, you can talk whatever that issue is. And and certainly through the Trump administration, um, nobody could do it. I'm still I'm I'm a small government conservative, but conservative as defined by Russell Kirk, conservative as defined by Margaret Thatcher, conservative as defined by Ronald Reagan, uh, not conservative as defined by Donald Trump or people that have followed Donald Trump. It's just, you know, it's so funny. I remember in 94, Jeb Bush and I ran together. Jeb ran for the first time. We were both considered right wing extremists like Connie Mack was trying to calm both of us down. Okay, so maybe you just smooth off some of the rough edges. Jeb lost that year, came back, of course, and won in 98. But I think back to that and being on the bus with him as we were campaigning around the state of Florida and thinking that people were looking at us as the crazy right wing nuts. Yeah. And now neither one of us are supposedly conservative enough for the party when, in fact, uh, Jeb would do a much better job as president, you know, balancing the budget and sticking to conservative values the way Reagan and Thatcher and Buckley and Kirk uh, defined conservatism than anybody else out there. Yeah, I always it kind of amused me in, in 2016. I mean, I understand cultural sensibilities, but Jeb was always considered and probably was more conservative than his older brother. Oh, my God. And yes. all of a sudden he becomes the moderate rhino squish when he he hadn't changed his policy positions. Yeah, it, it's all tribalism. It, it's all shock and awe. Uh, Jeb, Jeb was ideologically the same that Jeb had always been, but he wasn't attacking the media. He wasn't owning the libs. I mean, it's it's become about owning the libs. I don't want to own the libs. I want to influence the libs. I'm in the conversion business. I'm a big believer in converting people to my cause because every person that you move over is one more person that's voting for your team. Uh, but for some reason, the party forgot about that and they want to be in a constant battle with, you know, I, I don't know, 50, <laughs> 50, 53% of America. Do you have a do you have a sense of why voters, the 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 conservative base that exists today, whatever label you want to use, but it's the Republican base right. has been very, very receptive to this. And in fact, you know, one of the things that I believe is true is you know, whatever, whoever the Republican nominee is in 24, whether it's Trump or whether it's somebody else, they're going to, to be to become the nominee, they're going to have to communicate that they're willing to fight as hard as Trump, even if right. they can't do it exactly the way he does it. And and if voters didn't like it, it wouldn't work, but it's worked. Right. Well, you know, I grew up in the Deep South. I grew up a conservative Republican. I grew up a Southern Baptist. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would go to church and the conversations going back 50 years were about how everybody made fun of conservatives, made fun of evangelicals, made fun of people who thought like us, who made fun of people who talked like us, you know, and how Hollywood looked down at us, how academia 
looked down on us, uh, how Washington looked down on us. Um, you know, and maybe somebody thinks that that made us culturally sound paranoid. But as the old saying goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean everybody's not out to get you. And I can tell you there there is there has always been that arrogance from the so-called mainstream media. Um, I think it's been tempered more in the past uh, decade or so. But I but there is a certain hardening of that. During the Trump era, there's a hardening of it right now during vaccines because and I will say I don't understand all of my friends and my family members who will look at Facebook instead of talking to their family doctor. I don't understand all of my friends and family members who voted for a guy who tried to arrest his political opponent two weeks before the election and tried to get his attorney general to do that. I don't I don't understand that. So. I find myself in a difficult position. I don't want to sound like the people talking down to me and my family and my church members and you know for whether it's First Baptist Church in Meridian, Mississippi or or in Pensacola, Florida, I don't want to sound that way. Uh, but at the same time, it's awfully hard to figure out uh, why my church and why my party and why my conservative movement all went in on, you know, a lifelong Democrat who is not conservative. I, I, so it's but but I think I but to answer your question, I do think it's the resentment. It's it's the and it's it's feeling like these people have been looked down upon their entire life, just like Trump is looked down upon. So he becomes their guy. The more he's attacked by the media, the more he's attacked by Hollywood, the more he's attacked uh, by uh, cultural elites, the more they're being attacked. Do you think the rise of 24-7 cable news, uh, where you've been employed for a while, I've been employed here and there, has had something to do with this? You know, we all look at Facebook now, Twitter and social media. That's the evil du jour. Mm -hmm. right. I've talked to a lot of uh, Republicans who've served in Congress, some of whom you overlapped with. And they say, look, you know, if the leadership says, let's do something really sensible or let's let's pass this piece of conservative reform, it's not everything. Right. But it'll 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 help that, you know, in the old days, the party controlled the money, controlled the message. And now, you know, forget social media for a minute. You can just run on if you're a Republican, you run on Fox News or OAN or Newsmax, mm -hmm. for that matter. Right. You say this is horrible. These people are selling out. Money pours in because we're now in an era of digital fundraising mm -hmm. and the base gets all riled up. And yeah. maybe sometimes the base should get riled up. But I'm wondering if if this is this would have happened regardless because people are paying more attention or maybe because of of this this vehicle people have to pay attention and a vehicle members of Congress have to go around leadership and complain is that why we are where we are to some degree? I think I think so. I, th I think in large part, uh, you uh, you talk about digital fundraising. It used to be you had to be a party person. You at least had to kind of play by the rules if you wanted to raise money, if you wanted to get elected. I was very fortunate. I, I ran a grassroots campaign and Newt was actually trying to defeat me because get this in 94, he said I was too conservative to win my district. So <laughs> I had a lot more freedom than most of the other members uh, in Congress, and they had to sort of bow down to leadership and ask the appropriations chairman or chairwoman, hey, 
would you host a fundraiser for me at Capitol Grill? Or would you host a fundraiser at me at Tortilla Coast for if you're chairman of the Armed Services Committee? Which means if they said yes, you needed to vote with them time and again. And if you didn't, you'd have to explain why. Now, um, people go out, they say the most outrageous things, money pours in. And when you look at the digital fundraising uh, on both sides, moderation's not rewarded. Uh, and especially uh, among Trumpists, bad behavior is rewarded. The more outrageous it seems uh, somebody's press conference is, the more money pours in. And so that's a real problem. I do think the biggest problem right now is Facebook uh, and websites, uh, a certain website that is whose name I won't mention that's run by a Chinese religious cult, uh, because that's what I'm getting in my emails, in my texts from friends. Hey, I just saw this. And then it's this outrageous conspiracy theory. Is this true? No, it's not true. I just saw this. Da, 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 da. No, Bill Gates is not going to put a chip in your head. I just and and <laughs> it's every day. It's not it's nothing that I'm hearing from. They didn't say I, I, I used to hear. Oh, I heard Glenn Beck say such and such on Fox News. And I'd say, no, mom, uh, Oklahoma is not about to change to Sharia law. Uh, now <laughs> it's it's knocking down one Facebook conspiracy theory after another. Uh, and and so it's but it's a, it is. A, there's no doubt it's a toxic group. Has this ever weighed on you? I, I, I'm just curious. You know, sometimes I think about I'm in a different position a little, but I'll think in my story. Well, if I put this comment in, is it fair? Is it out of context? Is it going to create a, a problem that doesn't exist? And look, you do this at a much higher level. I mean, you've got a lot of viewers you have on a lot of important people. And and I'm not saying it should weigh on you, but I'm, I'm just curious if you if you get up every morning and think to yourself, all right, what am I going to be dealing with today? You know, it weighed on me a couple of times. I mean, first time is when I first got to uh, TV and I had a show called Scarborough Country. And for the first year or so, they wanted me to do six segments, you know, where I was shocked and stunned and deeply saddened five days a week. <laughs> uh, and after a while, I just said, I can't do this. I just so much. I, I, there's too much bottom feeding going on here. And I just can't be shocked and uh, and outraged. Uh, and and then the other time where I was really balancing it was and where Meek and I, for the first time since Morning Joe started about two years into Trump, we spent 17 and 18 reacting to what we saw as the real dangers uh, and the excesses of Trump. And then we spent 19 and 20 constantly worrying that we were overreacting at times that we were that 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 our response was excessive. Uh, and every time we did that, he would come back and do something even more outrageous. And then we go, OK, well, I guess we're OK there. But it was this was something where every day um, we we were worried about uh, overcorrecting and uh, and Meek and I understood that what Donald wanted was he wanted us to overreact. He wanted us to shout and scream. He wanted us to get angry. And I just had to keep reminding myself that, you know, the best thing to do is just state the facts, laugh at him and the outrageousness of it all and move on. And, and, and just this 
because there was so much outrage porn being generated on all sides. It was just exhausting to viewers. And that really, of course, went on after he left office, obviously, for good reason about January the 6th, for good reason about uh, the vaccines. Uh, but again, uh, constantly worried uh, that 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 we contribute to that. And so I'm always trying to balance it a bit. Fascinating. Hey, what did you think of Trump the first time he announced for president in 2015? It was mid-June 2015. Right. He gave that speech. What did you and Mika think? Well, Mika came on the next day and said this guy could win the Republican nomination. Did you and, agree? Yeah, I did. I, because I'd seen how people reacted to him. You know, uh, you could walk down the street with Trump and 200 people would just swarm him. And he was always considered a joke in the media. He was always considered a joke in the business community. It's not like Jamie Dimon uh, would would ask Donald to go out to lunch to ask him business advice. Everybody sort of rolled their eyes when he got on The Apprentice and he was supposed to be this great business uh, titan. Um, and so people looked down on him and Mika kept saying it's a mistake. Uh, and um, she thought that he could win the nomination. I thought he could win the nomination. I didn't think he could win the presidency and 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 said so, especially uh, in early December when he started talking about Muslim registry and started talking about things that I thought sounded like Germany in 1933. Um, but he proved us wrong, just like he proved everybody else wrong. What were you thinking when he was declared the de facto nominee? I think it was after that Indiana primary. He demolished Cruz once and for all. I, 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 um, I was depressed. I mean, I you you asked about what's changed. I I actually in '94 I actually believed that uh, we conservatives, we Republicans, were fighting the good fight. On again, I mainly was obsessed with with. Uh, small government, uh, balanced budgets, uh, and, and being, uh, just, just good government. Um, and I couldn't believe what happened to the Republican party. I was really disappointed that on uh, like a Tuesday, Paul Ryan called him a racist. And on a Wednesday, Paul Ryan endorsed him. <laughs> Paul, how do you do that? And, you know, Meek and I were saying, I said to Paul, and said to all Republicans, don't give this guy something for nothing. Don't let him bully you. You have to stand up to him. Make sure that your support is contingent on him doing whatever it would be that Paul Ryan or another Republican would want. Uh, but they just couldn't do it time and again. They would stand up and then back down and it kept getting worse. Uh, you get to January the 6th, you have Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham standing up and then backing down even after, uh, you know, his supporters committed sedition against the United States. So. Um, so I, I've been I, I I don't want to be melodramatic, but I've been heartbroken because I got into Congress at an early age and it's been. What I've uh, it's sort of been my how I've spent a good bit of my adult life fighting what I considered to be the good fight and then turning around and finding out that a lot of things that people were saying about me and saying about my church and saying about conservatism and saying about Republicans um, ended up being right all along. Hmm. 
What did you think the night that he won? I was shocked. We had, we, you know, we had run him over, uh, been very, very, uh, very tough on him during the, the 2016 campaign. We, we laid him on the show a lot in 2015. And it's so funny. Liberals love to say, oh, you helped get him elected. <laughs> like, wait a second. You think that a three hour MSNBC morning show decided who was going to win the Republican nomination? OK, you're more of an elitist than you want to admit publicly. Uh, but, yeah, we 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 had a relationship with him for a decade uh, and I actually called him and I he got elected. I said, Donald, I, I know we've we've been rough, but obviously rough on you. But obviously uh, everybody's cheering for you. Everybody wants you to do a good job. As uh, Bob Gates said, you know, we get we have one president at a time and we have to do what we can to make them succeed. And so. Um, I told him that, and uh, he sounded really scared. Now, I subsequently heard Chris Christie talking about how his wife was crying, uh, uh, demoralized, uh, Mike Pence and Mike Pence's wife were uh, in a state of shock. Um, but yeah, we were in a state of shock, but it also sounded like he was in a state of shock. He had, he, you know, this was a branding exercise that went terribly wrong. <laughs> he, he, he ended up getting elected. They were terribly right, depending on who you ask. Hey, one yeah, more thing. Yeah. Before, no, no, I'm saying, yeah. though, a, a branding exercise for him. That's a good point. That, that even for him yeah. ended up going terribly wrong because he didn't it's, think it, he was going to get elected president. No, it's a, and you could I, tell and, the night he won, he was so soft spoken and he had such such so little to say. And you knew that wasn't something he was planning that wasn't a speech he was planning to give no hey, but, but before i i let you go and uh before your staff kills me i just wanted to ask you if you think our system in its current form state local federal can sustain another trump defeat in 2024 in which trump will not accept that defeat i think it can um, you know, everybody's been talking about uh, Washington Post piece uh, last weekend. Um, uh, Kagan, uh, Robert, yep. K Robert Kagan wrote uh, talking about all the signs that, that our democracy was failing. And um, there's a lot in that piece that that concerns me. I think the one thing, though, that he overlooked was the fact that, yes, the first branch did not stand up to the second branch of government, but the third branch sure as hell did. I mean, our courts, there was one Trump judge after another Trump judge after another Trump judge uh, that would not entertain any conspiracy theories about widespread voter fraud. The Supreme Court of the United States uh, with uh, the three Trump justices that everybody was sure we're going to jump in and deliver the presidency to him, refused to do it. I think there was uh, in uh, the Pennsylvania case, I think you had Thomas and Alito. Actually, I think they wrote a dissent saying, hey, we should listen to this case only because I, it's that that is actually one time where uh, I thought they may actually in Pennsylvania have a case if it had made a difference where the, the Supreme Court had stepped on the state legislature. And I thought there were good cons constitutional questions uh, to be addressed there. 
But even Alito and Thomas said, it's not going to make a difference. Even if we take this case on, Biden will still be president of the United States, but we should take the case on just in case it happens four years from now. And so I, I just I bring all of this up to say that our federal judiciary held held the line. And maybe it's because I'm a lawyer. I've always believed that at the end of the day, what really separated us from other countries, from other democracies was the rule of law and the fact that we have a tough, strong, independent judiciary. And I remember in February, I think it was February of 17, talking to um, a conservative friend whose wife happened to be a federal judge. Uh, and a member of the Federalist Society, very, very conservative. Trump had just attacked the, quote, so-called judge in Washington state, uh, who I think had, had questioned his so-called Muslim ban um, and attacked that federal judge, suggested that he didn't have the authority to do it. And I remember my conservative friend saying, oh, that was just such a bad mistake because it doesn't matter if they're members of the Federalist Society or if they're Larry Tribe, an attack against one federal judge is an attack against all federal judge judges and is an attack against uh, the independence of the judiciary. And so before I get there and say that I don't think our government can withstand another four years of Donald Trump or our government can't withstand another Trump loss, uh, I I I'm going to have to see some more cracks in the foundation of our federal judiciary because I just haven't seen any yet. Joe Scarborough, thanks so much for joining me on In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024. All right. Thank you for having me, David. This is great. Love to do it again sometime. Look forward to it, Joe. Thank you very much. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024 and the future of the GOP, publishes October 19th and is available for pre-order. On a daily basis, you can catch my work online at www.washingtonexaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.